This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Welcome to our ninth episode where we continue our reading in chapter 4 of Genesis. We will meet new characters and hear various details that work to establish the lore of the story of Genesis, not to mention the most disastrous act committed by humankind thus far. We will learn that the Hebrew informs us of the calamity beforehand, but even still the disease of greed and jealousy strikes us as Cain's condemning question pangs our very being. Am I my brother's keeper? So before we read and discuss the story of this book as it continues in this chapter, I want to go on and aside about a feature of biblical literature that I assume many of our listeners are familiar with. However, I do believe it is of the essence to prime our hearing of Scripture with these reminders, and also to never forget about our brothers and sisters who may be hearing all of this for the first time. We of the scholarly sort tend to forget how much we've been gifted in our knowledge of the Bible. At the end of the day, that knowledge isn't for us to create a self-gratifying echo chamber, but rather it is for us to share with everyone, despite their prior knowledge and experience. Anyways, the feature of biblical literature that I'm talking about is the feature of verbal-centric naming, that is, the naming of characters and places. I argue that the Bible has no concept of proper nouns, but we rather project our modern naming mechanisms back on these descriptors given to people and places in the Bible. Today, names serve not a whole lot more than a title to which we address another person, normally for some sort of financial or emotional transaction, nothing more. In the Bible, it is not so. We've discussed how embedded in the name of Adam is the verb dama, which is to be like, and how it is also literally identical to the verb meaning to be read, as Adam comes from the Adama which likewise denotes a red, formable clay, which God molds all the land animals from. So we should not say, the character's name is Adam, but the character is Adam. And then spend the time to explain what that means for people who don't already know. And as we will continue to see, this is precisely how the Bible uses names. This is the entire premise that genealogies are constructed from. Genealogies tell a story, or mashal, through the meaning of the characters' names within it. This naming phenomenon is similar to the naming conventions of the Middle East today, the culture that the Bible was historically born out of. 
A person's name is who they are or what they do. Another example is the First Nations of the Americas. All of us who grew up in the United States and Canada have heard of historically significant First Nation characters, such as Sitting Bull, which of course communicates his character, what he is like, and what qualities he possesses. I'm spending time on this because the names that appear in Genesis 4 are extremely important for understanding how the story was meant to be heard. So we have to put in the work in order to hear it as it presents itself. So let us read. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we are told that Adam and Eve have Cain. The attitude of the couple is important here. Eve says, I have gotten a man, referring to Cain. And that word is the Hebrew kana, which means to possess or to acquire, and sometimes even to erect a building. All of these often appear within the context of purchasing, to acquire, to possess. So, what's more is that this phraseology should remind us of the nuances alluded to in chapter 2 with the building of the woman. Of course, we should also remember that the original recipients of this text would not have one week-long breaks between every chapter as we do in this podcast. They would have heard the content of chapter 2 just a few minutes prior to this. So, the themes are clear Right. When we approach this text as a single continuous scroll as the earliest audience would have received it, we notice the striking parallel between Eve's reaction to the birth of Cain and Adam's reaction to the birth, quote-unquote, of Eve. You can sense in the way that this was delivered a deeply emotional response, not in the gratitude of a gift, but in the pride of a possession. It's right there in the language, in the meaning of Cain's name as a possession. We notice this extremely important, but now politically misunderstood, distinction between the concepts of possession and inheritance. The Bible makes it extremely clear that God's gifts and his promises are an inheritance, uh, yorash in Hebrew, meaning his gifts are never earned, but they can be lost. We see a common mashal, or example of this truth, communicated in the various exiles of the Israelites out of the land that God had allowed them to occupy and inherit. At no point does Israel possess the land, and any English translation that tells you they do is translating Yerash incorrectly, and is likely politically motivated. Yerash means inherit, Kana means possess. They're two different words. One is positive and one is negative. To put this into perspective, the entire saga of Israel's inheritance of Canaan is all a mashal to set us up for the concept of salvation by grace through faith in the New Testament. Biblically, we are saved first 
by the grace of God because it is he who bestows his grace of inheritance for us. And then we must respond to that grace by walking in faith and trusting in God's promises. If we fail to respond to that grace and in turn fail to treat others with the grace God gave us, then we lose our inheritance in the kingdom. That is biblical salvation, devoid of the silly debates between Protestants and Catholics and, unfortunately, even my own Orthodox brothers and sisters about faith versus works and all that nonsense. And the biblical concept of inheritance is completely foreign to the equally silly debate in the Middle East over land possession and the various Zionist and anti-Zionist movements. No one owns that land. No one but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what baffles me is when Christians take up Zionist causes. Like, no one would ever say that anyone possesses God's grace. I mean, that just sounds so blasphemous on so many levels. God can inherit or disinherit anyone he pleases. That's the name of the game. Now, I know that was a bit of a tangent, but it really behooves us to understand this point because it is this very topic which has completely unnecessarily divided Christianity in the West for 500 years. And it has had disastrous effects in the Levant in recent history with the rise of Zionism in the modern state of Israel. Now, not to get political, but I think it, this is extremely important to bring up because from my reading of this text and what the Hebrew is communicating, it's based on a very poor uh, and politically motivated interpretation of what God is saying. And it all starts in these early chapters of Genesis, with both Adam and Eve claiming possession, literally misunderstanding God's grace. And we see in both of these scenarios how disastrous that can be. So please, please, in the name of everything that is good and holy, let's pay attention like our salvation depends on it. We'll come to see at the end of this chapter that it is the wicked, the evil, and the cast out who take God's word and twist it to justify their own actions. That is the grave sin that is being illustrated by Lamech at the end of this chapter. Uh, but we'll hear about that when we get to it. The reason we spend so much time on these topics is that we have to communicate the story of this text. And when it comes to points like these that the authors are so clearly introducing to then elaborate on in later stories... Well, unfortunately, we have to bring our shovels to heave off the manure that's been piled onto the story for centuries. Cain is the character that represents the human desire to possess and subsequently tarnish what was originally a gift. Also connected to this negative idea embodied in the very word Cain is the allusion to murder. Now, I know most of our listeners are familiar with the story, but even those who aren't, I promise I'm not spoiling anything. The word Cain in Hebrew, properly pronounced Cain, is exactly the same word as spear. Same pronunciation, same spelling, everything. Again, this is literature. It is story. So foreshadowing is a classic device that any author worth his salt will employ. In tandem with this is the fact that Abel, in Hebrew, properly pronounced Tevel, is exactly the same as the word vanity, passing breath. So we have more foreshadowing that this character isn't going to last very long. And put those two things together, we can see that the authors are saying, prepare yourself. Cain 
will kill Abel. The spear will pass through the passing breath. Why is it being so obviously foreshadowed? Well, it's because the murder is not the calamity. The authors seem to be preparing us ahead of time, so we won't be thrown off guard, totally surprised when it happens. Okay, well, what is the calamity if it's not the first murder of a human? I will hold my breath here, because the Bible says it much better than I could. So when we consider the functional meaning of both of these characters, we notice the paradigm being employed here. Biblical mashal typically makes use of opposites in order to communicate the teaching in the clearest and most memorable way. Remember in chapter 1 how it made use of language like light and dark, dry land and watery sea, day and night, male and female, etc. Cain and Abel are no different. Cain represents the concept of possession that leads to the violence of the spear and evolves increasingly toward more powerful and destructive expressions, which leads to the human kingdom, a truly disastrous and ungodly arrangement, according to scripture. This will become clear in Cain's genealogy. This is also relatively clear early on in that he is essentially a farmer, i.e. someone who owns his plot of land to serve his own purposes. And this land is cursed as well, so there's just so much subtext happening that we oftentimes don't think about it. Abel, on the other hand, is representative of the Bedouin shepherd who relies solely on God to the point where he is willing to give up the firstborn of his sheep, completely out of trust. In Hebrew, this word is aman, towards God. He, unlike his brother Cain, who takes after his parents, understands that God's gifts are in inheritance again, not a possession. This is why God has respect for Abel's offering, but no respect for Cain's. This section is laid out for us, teaching us through this mashal, how God's grace works and how we as believers should approach it. It is extremely powerful. Yes, because what does it mean biblically to offer one's first fruits or firstborn? What are the implications of that? Well, immediately after they are produced, be it first fruits or firstborn of flock or family, you have no idea if they will produce again. If my field yields a bountiful crop, I have no idea what the next season will bring. There could be a plague that wipes out me or my crop, or marauders who drive me out and kill my family, eating my produce for themselves, leaving me nothing. Or, after my sheep birth a new male sheep, I have no way of knowing whether or not that will be my only male for two or three generations. If something happens to him, my sheep can't reproduce and eventually the flock will fade. So despite all of this fear and unknowns, you rid yourself of the first fruits and the firstborn by your own hand as a gesture that you trust in God. God doesn't want your wheat or for you to slaughter his sheep. He wants your faith. Because you, the human being, are the one who needs it. Okay, so why doesn't God accept Cain's offering from the ground he worked? Well, for a couple of reasons. For one, we aren't told that it is the first fruits of his work, so we should assume that it is not, since this is followed by the specificity of Abel's being the firstborn of flock. Secondly, we once again must remember the timeline of this story. Just a few verses ago in chapter 3, 
we heard the curse of man, that now, due to his disobedience, the ground will only produce for him thorns and thistles, and the vegetation of the field is for him to eat. But Cain brings an offering from the ground, thorns and thistles from the ground. And even if this was the vegetation from the field, God just commanded that this very thing, the vegetation, was for the humans. So it's obvious why God doesn't accept it. Cain blatantly disregarded God's decree and came before his face in hopes to receive God's favor. And God says no. And then, despite Cain's temper tantrum, we hear Yahweh's patience. He says, why has your face fallen? If you are to do good, won't you be accepted? But if you are not to do good, sin is crouching at the door and its desire. Now let's hear it as the Hebrew presents it. Its desire is to encroach, to come upon you, but you should rule over it. God isn't condemning him. He's warning him in love as a father would. He is saying that Cain is more than a selfish child. He is meant to rule, get this, to mashal over sin. So let us see. Does Cain listen? Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled into the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, uh, in a quite jarring and humorously abrupt transition, We go from God's fatherly and soft warning against Cain's possessiveness to the slaying of his own brother. This detail alone is important because no matter what culture you're from, it's one thing to kill another human, but a much more horrific thing to kill your own flesh and blood. Now, of course, the ironic thing is that in the Bible, all people are related to each other and are part of the same kin, so to kill another human is to kill your own flesh and blood. And it's what Cain says after God questions him about his actions that I think jumpstarts the entire biblical saga. Am I my brother's keeper? There is absolutely no remorse, no repentance, no grief, nothing to signify that Cain had any respect for the life running through his brother's veins. This is not just an incidental moment. This is when humanity becomes truly broken and God must intervene. 
Again, everyone put so much stock in the sin of Adam and Eve, but in comparison, that was a minor uh-oh compared to Cain's depravity. Everyone wants to say that the big game changer was the expulsion from the garden. But I think it was actually this moment right here. Because when Cain asks the question, am I my brother's keeper? To me, it seems like the rest of the biblical story going forward is saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And it says this over and over again in a variety of different mashalim in order to bore this into your head and into your heart so that it will become a part of your very soul. This is the Bible's inciting incident. This is the calamity. It gives so much more weight to Jesus' words in the New Testament when he says, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Right, your brother is the person standing right next to you. Yeah. I want to reread a portion of what we just heard, but I want us to remember who the ground is and who God is in the story relating to the humans. It is almost impossible to rid ourselves of our presumptions, that is, our pre-assuming nature, and we end up reading these characters as anything other than what the scriptures present them to be. So let me remind our listeners just who these characters are in the story of Genesis 1-4. through 4. Again, who these characters are. First, please remember that the ground is not just the dirt or the fields of land or the dry land that rose up from the waters in Genesis 1, but it is the Adama, a character in her own right. Before there was vegetation on the ground, God caused a mist to rise up from the Adama, and it watered the whole face of the ground. This is a symbol of fertilization, similar to how vegetation is fertilized with a mist, if you will, of pollen. So the moldable afar, that is the mud of Adama, is taken into the hands of God as he forms all of the land animals, and since they are our focus, I will emphasize the humans. We then hear various mashalim, or examples, of the fatherly quality of God and the motherly quality of Adama, and that God provides guidance, wisdom, scolding, and the Adama is the home, the provider, the caregiver. And what does God say when he learns of the murder? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the Adama. Now cursed are you from the Adama, who has opened her mouth to receive the blood of your brother from your hand. When you work the Adama, she will no longer give you her strength, for you will be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth, not the Adama. I pray we understand this. Cain didn't just murder his brother in a cold, unrepentant staleness, but he disgraced his father, Yahweh, and poured the blood of his brother over their mother, the Adama. She is bereft as she receives her weeping child, Abel, and Yahweh stands in melancholic disapproval at what his son has done. Yeah, I don't think people pick up on that. I mean, I never picked up on it. Is that the, the Adama is mourning this loss. It's a very dramatic picture that we have here of what it truly means to murder somebody, to undo what God has done, because God is life. 
And so to even consider that, going on what you were saying earlier about how this has so much power when we think about the words of Jesus, and, and really it's the other way around. Jesus's words have power because you understand the root of all this from Genesis. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. And then we have the gall to, you know, not perhaps physically murder other people, but to simply be angry with them, to, 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 to simply have negative emotions towards an individual and to harbor uh, hate or, you know, any sort of contempt towards another human being when what we should be doing is loving them because whatever they m- must be doing to uh, anger you is all the more reason that they are somebody that needs to be prayed for. Amen. So when we read on, we quickly notice that Cain's immediate preoccupation with, is with himself and his own self-preservation. Notice the complete lack of any apathy for the incredibly grave sin he's just committed against the life-giving God. He's worried that someone may do to him what he did to his brother. In other words, he's terrified of justice. But even then, even though Cain does not deserve it by any means, God is still merciful to him and denounces any vigilante justice, so to speak, to be taken against Cain. However, even though God promises his protection for Cain, we see through Cain's actions that he still lacks the aman, the faith or trust in God's promise to him. Notice how Cain's recompense is to wander the earth as a shepherd would. Literally, God is saying, be like your brother Abel and you will be saved. But Cain does not feel secure in this and lacks his brother's faith. So he humorously does the exact opposite. He builds a city in the land of Nod, which means wandering. So in the land where God said to wander, he settles down and stays put and builds a city wall so that he'll be protected from others like himself. If that is not the most poignant illustration of human behavior, then I don't know what is. And here's the thing, though. And this is where the biblical text is very challenging to us because you can understand Cain's trepidation. God told him to live like his brother, and we see that for Abel, this didn't end super well. Abel was killed. So Cain doesn't want to die. He wants the protection that Abel didn't have. But here's the problem. God never says that he will protect you from evil people or that he will keep you from tasting death but that he will carry you through death to eternal life, the true heavenly promised land, just as a shepherd leads his sheep through the barren and unforgiving desert to the oasis, the land flowing with milk and honey. He doesn't keep the flock from the inevitable suffering of the journey to the oasis, but rather he leads them through it. The reason why God doesn't keep us from this is that when it comes to us humans, at least, we bring the suffering upon ourselves. Therefore, it's unavoidable. But there is a way out. But because we have enslaved ourselves to death, we have to go through death first. This is exactly what we celebrate in the Orthodox Church during the Paschal season. And this is a point that remains such a powerful reality for me. 
I used to believe, in my ignorance, that Christianity is about avoiding death or running away from the inevitable because of the belief in the afterlife and heaven and all of that. But that couldn't be any less the truth. To live in this sinful world is to inevitably suffer. But God in his goodness takes that suffering upon himself and enters the depths of hell in order to rescue us from the bonds of the serpent that eats the dust we return to after death. He remakes us. He gives us new bodies. He leads us to the kingdom. And we participate in this when we are baptized. It's right there in the words of St. Paul in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Romans. It's so powerful and it's vital to understand. Now, not to make this a patristics podcast, but it's extremely powerful to me how the church fathers focus so much of their energy on the gravity of the incarnation. For God to truly save us from the enslavement of death, he had to take on our human nature and succumb to death himself. In other words, he needed to stoop down to our level and suffer with us. This is twofold. For one, we were so trapped by the coffin we built for ourselves that God literally needed to come down and pull us up from our graves by our own wrists, as it's beautifully represented in Orthodox icons depicting the resurrection. But it's also a brilliant response to theodicy, which for those unfamiliar is the problem of evil, which questions the existence of a benevolent God in an evil world. But to me, this totally throws theodicy out of the window when God is not merely witnessing the suffering and doing nothing about it, but instead chooses to suffer with us in order to bring us relief. Therefore, trusting God does not mean that your life will be easy. It means that your life will be as difficult as it was, as, as it's always been. But you won't be alone. You'll be led by the staff of the Good Shepherd through the Devarim of his Torah, or in English, the words of his instruction. If you follow this instruction, God says, the Good Shepherd, who is also the suffering servant, will lead you to the land flowing with milk and honey, which is why we have to understand this and not be like Cain and, not, and lack the faith where we try to build up protections for ourselves that end up hurting other people because we don't want to trust God. Trust God. It's not going to make your life easier, but the end game is where it's at. Thank you all so much for joining us this week. This episode ended up being a bit longer than we anticipated, so we're going to go ahead and split it into two. Next week, we will tackle the remainder of Chapter 4, Shomer, listening for the remainder of this mashal, this story, as we do our due diligence in seeking to understand it as it presents itself for our instruction. Our greatest hope is to submit and to learn, and in turn, to be of some help to our humble audience who sacrifice their brief time in this land, to join us for a few minutes every week to hear what we have to say, which, inshallah, God willing, is born out of what the scriptures have to say. Let us walk in the way led by the staff of the Good Shepherd, who is the embodiment, the incarnation of the scriptural Devar Yahweh, word of the Lord. Alhamdulillah, all praise be to God. We will see you next week. Christ is in our midst.